Welcome to episode 33 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Chopin and Liszt. Hello. Hello. My name's Chris Bland. My name's Kelly Harlock. You're listening to episode 33 of That Classical Podcast. Welcome, everybody. This time, we're talking about two composers that have been requested quite a lot by all of you guys. Mm. Uh, We're talking about Chopin and Liszt. Yes, we are. And first... On the classical music shopping list today. Torturous. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's, it's Chopin. It's Frederick Chopin. Some people call him Chopin. Do what you want. <laughs> and that means it's now time for... Indeed. Yes. So that means that we're going to try and condense Chopin's entire life down into 60 seconds, which we've done before. We've done it a couple of times. And we'll do it again, by Jove. (laughs) Um, So, Chris, you ready to time me? I'm so ready. Please tell me all about Frédéric Chopin in three, two, one, go. Frédéric Chopin was born on 1st of March, 1810 in Warsaw, Poland. Let the piano as a young kid, and by the age of seven, he was an absolute know-it-all-child prodigy, giving public (laughs) concerts and composing. He studied music in Warsaw as a teenager, continued giving recitals to fancy people like Tsar Nicholas I of Russia, and composing for the aristocracy around Europe. In 1830, he'd had enough of Poland and moved to Paris for the rest of eternity. He was already a bit of a celeb when he got there and changed his Polish-looking names to French-looking names. He was writing a ton of piano music constantly and wrote first concerto that year. Had loads of important musician mates in Paris, like Liszt, Berlioz, and Schumann. Gave some big concerts, but didn't really think his music was suited for vast Halfway spaces, through. so only really played in private gatherings going forward. Supported himself by selling compositions and giving piano lessons, for which he was in high demand. Met future, future wife Amantine Dupin, also known as George Sand, at a party in 1836. Thought oh. she was absolutely gross. Got engaged <laughs> to someone else for a bit, then ended up getting off, getting off with George, and they became a couple. They travelled around Europe for a bit, but Chopin's health was absolutely crap. From 1842 onwards, he was basically just seconds. falling apart physically, and he started composing and performing less and less. George broke up with him in 1846 because she thought Fred was in love with her daughter. He died in Paris in 1849 Three, at the age of 39, probably one. of tuberculosis. Oh, what a life. That's exciting. What a life he led. So he was all over the place composing. Why do you think Georges Sand... So she's a famous French writer, so, right? Yes. So her full name is Amantine Dupin, right? Amandine of the bread. Um, right, right. I mean, I think it's spelled slightly differently, but we'll go, we'll go with that. I'll tell you a bit about her in a little bit. But before I just go into the top facts, let me say, and I'll refer to him as Fred from now on. <laughs> Fred wrote tons of stuff. I did I couldn't even mention it in the 60 seconds because he, he was just stuff, constantly writing. And although he wrote like a few massive compositions and like chamber music, the majority of what he wrote was sort of small solo works for the piano. And that is what you'll see mm. all over the place. If yeah. you Google Chopin, it's all piano. And he gave them, it's funny because they're just piano pieces, right? <laughs> he gave them a lot of silly, pretentious names. <laughs> like, you'll see, impromptus, etudes, mazurkas, sonatas, preludes, polonaises, waltzes, scherzos, uh, ballads, and right. nocturnes. They're just nice piano songs, lads. I'm sure if we were, you know, <laughs> writing a thesis on this, I'm sure arguably they're all very different. Right. But Maybe. they're just lots they're of different words nice for piano. nice piano pieces, That's it, basically. Isn't it? Right. But all of Chopin's compositions include the piano. So he cool. loved it. He well, loved the Joanna. Even his orchestral stuff. Yep, always a piano. Similarly for Liszt, actually. So Liszt, right. as we'll go on to talk about later in the episode, yeah. uh, he also wrote loads and loads for the piano, but did stuff for orchestra as well, but wherever he could. Shoved in a, a Joanna. A little bit of piano. A piano. And yeah, he basically was just a leading symbol of the romantic era of classical music. Yeah. So that's what we associate him with. Cool. 
And now to the bit I actually want to talk about. <laughs> he was a bit annoying and a bit of a weirdo. I'll give you the rundown. Discuss. Yeah. As to what why. did he do that was annoying and or weird? Okay. So, first of all, weird thing number one. Chopin only played piano in the dark. What? And I mean like total dark. So he started playing, doing this as a kid. And then he grew up and he was like, yeah, no, I still like that. And then even at his concerts, what, he, he extinguished totally the candles in the room and just played to everyone in the dark. I think they must have gone along with it because he was in Paris and stuff. On, and I'm was sure... This- actually a switcheroo and it was someone else playing the piano but he's like no i needed to be in the dark tweet us if you think that's probably what happened we've blown this conspiracy (laughs) wide open guys but do you know i think it was because he was or he always put himself across as this painfully shy person okay and actually so you might have heard me mention in the 60 seconds once he came to paris he came to paris in 1830 in the next 20 years he only gave 30 public performances because he massive yeah and he he mainly just played to people in his own house or in like because he didn't even really like playing in like salons but he did that okay so was he was he more famous as a performer or composer at that time then or i guess as a as as a composer but as i say he he would perform but Mm. it was on his terms and (laughs) completely in the dark very much on his terms right weirdo fact number two he gave piano lessons to people right people loved him they wanted to learn from him sure you know when you have a lesson of something you generally like pay someone at the end you're like oh thanks so much here is your money now yeah i'm aware how payment (laughs) works yeah (laughs) so chopin was like no no i can't do this I'm going to turn away now. You put the money on the mantelpiece. <laughs> like, <laughs> so like, he had to turn around and they had to go and put it on the mantelpiece. And then I guess he'd pick it up from there, but he didn't want them to pay him wow. directly. What a weirdo. Anyway, and then the, <laughs> the third one. So this is about George Sands, right? So I guess she she chose that nom de plume because she was trying to sound like she was a man because sure. she was a writer, sure. right? Anyway, so when uh, Fred met her, he was totally disgusted with her. She was apparently under five foot, had massive wrong with that. Right, had massive bug eyes and smoked a ton of cigars all the time. She sounds awesome. <laughs> get, right? She sounds like a laugh. I think I'd be her friend. Anyway, so he wrote a letter to his friend saying, what an unattractive person Lassande is. <laughs> is she really a woman? Whoa. <laughs> Still shagged her though, didn't he? Apparently so. Men. What they like. Uh, on that note, he had a really, really tempestuous relationship with her, as you might imagine. Right. And you can see this development in uh, the sort of changing of her pet names for him. So we started out with, she called him Chop Chop. Strong. Chopiny. My little grasshopper. Monsieur Velvet Fingers, <laughs> which just is a bit weird, actually. And then when she'd had enough of him, because he got really ill, and as I said, he was a bit of a whiner, a bit of a complainer. Right. Um, she started referring to him as my sufferer and my personal favourite, my beloved little corpse. Oh, my God. Dark, 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 dark stuff from George. So how do they get together if they seemingly just didn't like each it's other? It's weird because he was engaged to this kind of other girl when, right. when they met. But anyway, yeah, so they just got together and then they hated each other and they broke up because Georges thought that he fancied her daughter. Oof. So that was Oof. the end of that. Anyway, he was a whiner, not my type. He was also <laughs> busy mates with List, who we're going to talk about later. And they were, they were quite sweet, really, together. They used to play duets. They lived around the corner from each other. And as a lot of best of friends are, they were also frenemies. Oh no, what happened? They were like horribly jealous of each other (laughs) and they argued quite a lot. And so one of Liszt's mistresses also quite fancied Chopin and then Chopin 
dedicated some etudes to her casually. Uh, I mean, that is quite naughty. That is quite naughty. And it was tense, basically. It was tense for a bit. Um, But they were kind of like a bickering old couple, but honestly, best best mates. And then the final thing I want to talk about, one of the weirder things as well. He was a weirdo. (laughs) Chopin requested after he died that his body be opened after his death for fear of being buried alive. Which confuses me a little bit because if someone like opens you, you're going to be dead anyway. Well, yeah, he wanted to make sure that it was properly dead. So gruesome, isn't it, Grim? Don't get very alive. But so now his heart is in Warsaw in a church there Uh. in uh, Church of the Holy Cross. I believe it's in a pillar. It's a heart in a pillar. Cool. And the rest of him is buried in Père Lachaise in Paris. Oh, right. Also where Oscar Wilde is buried. Cemetery, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you're ever cool. in Paris, go and, go and visit Chopin. I'm sure we'd be pleased to see you. <laughs> so the first piece that I want to start with is Cello Sonata in G minor. That's not the piano. <laughs> right. Okay. Look, let me lay it out for you here. <laughs> it is one of only nine works that Chopin published during his lifetime that were written for instruments other than wow. the piano although it still obviously includes the piano sure, because yeah. it's Fred do you know sure. what I mean he knows what he wants and actually it, it, this cello sonata was one of the last works to be published by him and the last thing that he ever performed in 1848 oh, so wow, he, okay. he published this in 1846 performed it in 1848 yeah. and yeah you know Fred worked really hard on this because he had to distribute things properly between the cello and the piano There's because ju- that's all there is guys it's just a cello <laughs> And a piano. He had to like wrench himself away right. from writing no, more piano stuff. It's like, no, it's a cello piece. Seriously, Write though. More for the cello. And no, but, but because of that, he wrote the cello part first because I think he wanted that to be the heart of the piece. And, mm. and by writing it first, he then knew that he had to pull back on the piano. He had to chill out on the piano <laughs> side of things, which was, I Got think, it. a bit new for him, to be Fair. honest, even though it was quite late in his life. So the result is that actually this piece isn't what people consider quintessentially Chopin-esque, right? Which is why I chose it, because I think if you want to hear a thousand piano bits and bobs till the cows come home, you can do that. Just Google Chopin. Yeah, and there are so many of those available, but I wanted to just show you a different side with this. It's absolutely beautiful. Let's take a listen. So I really like that, but you can hear the piano like struggling against the cello it's me. the whole time. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> it, it honestly feels like it's like no, no got to let you. But I'm also playing. Do, do you know? I, I sort of disagree with that. I think <laughs> I think that Chopin did allow the cello to shine there. Like, yeah, no, 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 he did. In, ter- nice in terms piece. of how you know that really heartfelt sort of melody going on with the cello, and Very the piano yeah. is just behind it; it isn't taking away from that. But then sure. you're right because it does creep up after just that little dotted like, rhythm. Between, <laughs> it's like no, I'm still here. Between the cello's bits and bobs, not during them, but just in the little like breaths. Whenever there's a bit of exactly. silence, it's like piano time. Exactly. But the thing is, yeah, I guess it's true. You can hear his amazing kind of virtuosic piano skills as sure. well. So it's still very Chopin, but with an added bit of cello. That classical podcast.
Next! It's piano concerto number one in E minor. What a bizarre um, <laughs> introduction to that e minor. piece. Uh, now, this is another piece that isn't just piano. It's a concerto, so there's an orchestra orchestraing in the background. Um, technical term. But it still focuses around the piano because it's Fred it's and he just wants to. Okay, right. leave him alone. And as I said before, you can go and listen to a thousand solo Chopin piano pieces on your own watches, guys. Um, you're in my neighborhood now, so just do as I say. But also, I, I featured um, in our piano episode, I did use his um, ballad in G minor, which is one of my favorite mm. classical pieces in the world. Um, so that's probably what I'd say is my favorite Chopin piece. Okay. So do go back to that episode and uh, take a listen to that. But today we're going to talk about this piano concerto, all right? So Chop Chop, aka Monsieur Velvet Fingers, aka My Darling Corpse, <laughs> wrote this at the tender age of 20. And interestingly, while writing it, he penned a letter to his mate that said, here you doubtless observe my tendency to do wrong against my will. As something what? has involuntarily crept into my head through my eyes, I love to indulge it, even though it may be all wrong. I think what that is basically saying is he didn't necessarily know what he was, was doing. Or if it was any good, he right. was just like, just He just wanted to write, he smashed it out loud. All right, cool. And I sort of understand that because pianists of the time were expected to write their own show pieces. It's yeah. just what they had to do. Yeah. Um, so he just gave orchestration a bash, to be honest. <laughs> And some people sort of hate that the orchestra itself doesn't actually have much to do. Oh, that's really interesting. Right? And they think the score seems a little too kind of unoriginal, like a bad Mozart knockoff. But look, frankly, I like it, so leave me alone. All right. um, and more I importantly, I, I do feel that the orchestra being, yeah, fine, a bit vanilla, a bit beige, makes the absolutely stunning and intricate piano stand out even more so okay, to be honest right. i honestly think it, it it really works and i hope you're gonna like it so just to round this this bit off in that same letter that chopin wrote to his mate he said this it's not meant to create a powerful effect it is rather a romance calm and melancholy giving the impression of someone looking gently towards a spot that calls to mind a thousand happy memories oh. it is a kind of reverie in the moonlight on a beautiful spring evening so without further ado here it is didn't want that to end to be honest <laughs> it was so lovely what did you think uh yeah i i agree that it is that sort of very capital r romantic style of right. concerto sure. with a lot of focus less on sort of aesthetic beauty but more sort of about a feeling and stuff okay so there was a lot yeah, of yeah. from what he said about it the the quote you gave from yeah, your letter yeah yeah definitely get more of that impression from it i see Lovely. i see that i feel that i also <laughs> think that is a nice representation of chopin's kind of piano style that what sure. he was doing there yeah that's chopin you you hear that 
and it's Chopin. It's Chopin. It's it's his calling card. Do you know what I mean? And I just yeah, it, it's a beautiful piece, and you know, one of only a couple of orchestrated ones. Yeah. So um, do go and listen to the whole thing. I don't think you'll be disappointed. <laughs> so what else should we listen to if we want to know more about Chopin? Well, young man, <laughs> I'll tell you this for free. So first of all, go and listen to Ballad in G Minor. It's the it's the piece that um, from the pianist uh, from the end of the pianist. So if you might have heard it there and wondered what it was, uh, go and watch the pianist as well. Great film. <laughs> Um, and, and the whole soundtrack is Chopin. So, um, yeah. yeah, go and watch it. But also, yeah, as we said, you know, there are a million piano pieces by him. Not literally a million. Maybe, yeah, maybe not literally. But I think, you know, go and explore, go and listen to some nocturnes, some some preludes, a waltz or two. Um, <laughs> Mix it up, why his, not? His impromptus, everyone goes a bit mad for. So, do you know what? On the Spotify playlist, I will pick and choose my favourite for you. I'll put sort of three or four nice mm. piano pieces on there as well that you can can listen to. And yeah, go and explore. That classical podcast. Next up on the list, it's Franz Liszt. Very good. You get it because both nice. their names sound like nice work. Like Liszt. <laughs> So, Liszt is often mentioned together with Chopin. Uh, as Kelly mentioned, they were in Paris at the same time. They were both born roughly the same time. Mm-hmm. And now, as always, it's time to do the old 60-second biography for Liszt Here as we well. go. Are you ready? Oh, yes. Are you steady? Franz Liszt, born 1811, died 1886. He was the greatest piano virtuoso of his day. He was born in Hungary, impressed some wealthy benefactors with his mad piano skills, so he went to study in Vienna aged nine. In 1827, he moved to Paris after the death of his father, gave loads of piano lessons there, and drank and smoked a lot. Didn't compose much in this period after being an initial child prodigy, uh, crazy output genius. Still involved with musical life in Paris, though, becomes familiar with people like Berlioz and Paganini, the latter becomes an ideal idol for him. Uh, also prefers Chopin and brings out his poetic and romantic side. 1833, falls in love with Countess Marie Dagout. They live all over Europe, have one daughter and one son. Halfway through. Uh, Liszt becomes a touring virtuoso travelling all over Europe. Public goes nuts for him. He's pretty handsome. Audiences fight over his clothes, tearing his silk gloves to shreds, for example. Uh, he gives away lots of his money to <laughs> charitable causes, generally a top bloke. Stops touring after about 12 years. Um, 15 seconds. Focuses on composition, but still travels around lots, giving masterclasses for free. Lives between Rome, Weimar and Budapest. Uh, hugely admired and respected Ten. in high demand. Died in 1886 because of pneumonia. He was in Bayreuth at the time. Uh, he'd been generally healthy until five. fall down some hotel stairs. Oh. For, uh, hotel stairs Eight. five years earlier. They gave him health problems. And then... One. He died of pneumonia. Oh, wow. Whoa. Tell me. Break it down. Go. Uh, so generally just like quite a nice guy, basically. Okay. There's not all the scandals of lots of other composers. He uh, was unbelievably admired and respected. Did you say people tore his gloves apart? Oh, my God. So the word for this was listomania. And Shut up. I know, right? So he uh, very much took Paganini, who, if you remember, we talked about in a previous episode. Yes! Uh, who was the sort of the original rock star virtuoso. Bad boy, turning up with a black horse and black carriage and things like that. Someone's listened to the back episodes Someone of that classical podcast. Yeah. Uh, so he took Paganini very much as like a model to take after. So what Paganini did for the violin, Liszt wanted to do for the piano. Right. So he did that by not only becoming a crazy virtuoso, but by touring the length and breadth of Europe. So we're talking The like length and the breadth. The length and the breadth. <laughs> right. So, but as in he went from all the way to Turkey, to Ireland, to Romania, wow. to Portugal. Amazing. So really went all over the shop. Mm. 
And people just went nuts for him. Clearly. They loved him. So he was it was a bit of a looker. He looked he looked alright. Is there an ancient wooden etching that I can have a look at to prove this? <laughs> There's real life actual photographs of him. No way. Yeah. I'll better check those out. Check them out. <laughs> <laughs> right, you do that. But yeah, so audiences absolutely loved him because he was just such a phenomenal performer. So mm. he in this 12-year period that I mentioned where he was mostly active, he did about a thousand concerts so very much unlike Chopin. Bloody that's the absolute uh, opposite yeah. complete opposite mm. and people just really really loved him and so they would fight over souvenirs of his he would gloves. like throw his gloves into the audience and people would like fight and tear them to shreds okay. and fight mm-hmm. over them so he loved it basically he did yeah he he, he mm. totally embraced this sort of just mega megastar <laughs> yeah, persona mm-hmm. Now, because I talked about Paganini before, one way in which he was very similar to Paganini, Mm. so Rachmaninoff, remind me again what's special about Rachmaninoff. Massive hands! And what was special about Paganini? Massive hands! Now, interestingly, (laughs) Liszt did not have... Massive hands! He actually had fairly normal-sized hands, as did Chopin. But what they had that was different to lots of other people was they didn't have very much webbing in between their fingers. Gross. So if you look at your hands, you know, you've got like the 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 webbing there. Go, web, go! (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But what they had was that we can see from photos and like uh, contemporary statues of them, their webbing like connected much lower down the fingers. Gross. Sounds quite gross, but it meant that with their normal sized hands, they had a lot more like flexibility and finger independence. Finger pendants. Finger pendants, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so that's what allowed them to be sort of so insanely dexterous wow. on the piano. Okay, so it's not my fault I'm not good at the piano. It's because of my webbing is normal webbing. Well, I mean, Liszt was supposed to have practiced about 12 hours a day from the age Maybe of seven onwards. <laughs> so. Hell. Uh, but so it was over the course of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of concerts that he gave over Europe that Liszt came up with lots of what we now think of as just like standards in concerts. Oh, cool. So he was the first to do solo performances on the piano in a big concert hall. Okay. No one, like, it seems weird to think back now, but no one had ever done that before him. Did he not do it in the dark? He did not do it in the dark <laughs> okay. either. He did it in well-lit big concert halls. And he, in fact, was the first to call it a recital. So now just the standard word no we have for that kind of concert. That was lit. That was Liszt. He came up with that. Uh, He was also the first person to perform a whole program of pieces that like went over the time periods. So from like Bach all the way up to his contemporaries like Berlioz and stuff. I see, I see. Which at the time people wouldn't really do. They'd either play pieces just from one time period or more often, in fact, it would be one piano player would do like a couple of solo piano pieces, then an orchestra would play, and it was all a bit more of a mixed bag. Right. But he was the first one to put on a concert where it's like all piano all day throughout history. All the time. And if that wasn't enough, oh God. he was pretty much again the first performer to do everything from memory. So before that, people generally relied on sheet music, and he was like, nope, I am a rock star. Gonna do all this off the top of my noggin. Because nowadays, when you do go to uh, a concert or something, most musicians will just perform things from memory, and they will do hours from memory, and it (laughs) is amazing. But wow, so he was the first person to do that. that. Amazing. And if that wasn't enough first, <laughs> yeah. uh, Lay it on me. he was, uh, so as I mentioned, don't know if you got it in my 60 seconds, mm. he, after he had his performing career, after that he was in big demand as a teacher, because mm-hmm. he then decided to focus more on composition, but everyone still loved him as a performer, so they're like, please, can you do lots of teaching now? Mm. So he was still traveling all over the shop, all over Europe, and he was the one who came up with the concept of a masterclass, which is where you have <gasps> three or four students in one lesson at the same time, and they watch each other and learn from yes. each other. Yeah. <laughs> 
which now seems like totally self-evident and a really normal way of teaching. But he was the first one to do that. No way. And because he was such a top bloke, yeah. uh, he did this for free. Like all the other teachers of the day, like obviously charged top dollar. He did it for free. And he was just like, oh, well, I'm not going to charge for this. That seems silly. It's actually was just quite nice. List honestly just sounds a just a like, nice just like a, a great dude. So with all of that in mind, yes. let's go on to talk about the first piece of his. Do let's. So the first piece we're going to cover today is called the Mephisto Waltz, number one. And so he wrote four of these Mephisto waltzes. So Mephisto is a character uh, from Faust, which is by Goethe. Ah, okay. And so all of these waltzes are based on scenes from Faust that involve Mephisto, obviously. And so he wrote these four waltzes uh, from 1859 through to 1885. Mm Uh, and so this first one he wrote over the course of about three years, 1859 to 1862. Right. And it is, in fact, a piano transcription of an orchestral piece that he wrote. And in fact, he wrote huh. three versions of this piece at the same time. So he wrote an orchestral piece, a piano duet, and then for solo piano, which... And the solo piano is actually more of a, like a recomposition of it rather than just a straight-up transcription. Awesome. And before we go on to listen to it, just a quick side note about Liszt's compositional output. So mm-hmm. as I said, for a long time, he was mostly just a performer with the occasional composition but by the end of his career around half of his output so i think he wrote something like 800 odd pieces over his whole career about half of the output was transcriptions of other people's works so reimagining them for the piano which is really interesting so it's not just like copying them down it's reworking them so that they Mm -hmm. work on the piano Mm -hmm. and so one of the people he did this for notably was one of his contemporaries Berlioz Hector Hector Berlioz Berlioz. who basically at that time was sort of incredibly poverty stricken couldn't get anyone to publish any of his works but Liszt who had some sort of Mm. cultural weight behind him was Mm. like Got you, hecky bee. I got you. <laughs> and uh, yeah. transcribed some of his works for piano and performed them all over Europe. And then people are like, hey, this Berlioz guy is pretty good. Stand-up guy. So we're going to now listen to Mephisto's Waltz. He's basically the devil. He plays the fiddle. Faust dances around to it. That's pretty much what's going on here. Sick. So let's have a listen. Christopher Bland. Tell me. That, I love that piece, first of all. Good. Uh, I know it well. But it just, it is a, it's a banger. Like it's got, <laughs> it's got like almost like a beat, doesn't it? And you can like, it's a sure. cool yeah. piece of classical music. And I'm sure like, for the time, <laughs> it was really interesting and exciting. And it would be really fun to go and see that. It was. So um, this, as I have said, was one of four waltzes, technically more mm. like three and a half, because the fourth one, uh, he never actually finished, but it was called Bagatelle something something. Sure but was a really atonal piece, the the fourth one. Right. So he was actually really pushing the boundaries of what was going on. So mm. yeah, the, it would have been, all four pieces would have been sort of quite so cool. exciting. Yeah. yeah no, yeah. I, I just think it's, um, it's not, it doesn't sound particularly difficult, but when I was looking at this piece, I found the sheet it music does, for yeah. it. And, well, yeah, <laughs> the sheet music for it. And just, 
yeah, all the stuff that now we sort of take for granted in terms of like pianistic ability and talent, mm. what like your standard professional pianist should be able to do. Mm. List kind of came up with loads and loads of that. So one thing I found out about when he first moved to Paris, he was sponsored by a piano company, basically. So like, this guy is great and we're going to give him pianos for all of his concerts, right. which sort of worked well on mainland <laughs> Europe, but then they had to like work out how to get pianos to the UK and stuff. Disaster. Anyway, mm. uh, they basically came up with a new feature on the piano for him. I don't know that much about piano construction, <laughs> but I think it was called like a double escapement, which basically means the key springs up faster so that you can play the same notes a bunch of times more quickly. That's so cool. Yeah, so they basically changed the piano to let list be even listier than he already was. Right, because you're right, there are plenty of repeated notes in things in, like in, that. In, yeah. for example, that mm, piece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good yeah. point. And that's Mephisto's Waltz, number one. There are, as I said, two and a half other ones. Go and check those bad boys out. Bad Classical Podcast. So the next piece by Monsieur List that I'm going to talk to you about is the third of his three concert études, Brilliant. which he wrote in 1849. So as the name somewhat suggests, étude obviously is a study, mm-hmm. uh, a piece that he would write for or that anyone would write for a student to learn how to do a particular aspect of playing that instrument. Brilliant. So in this one in particular, it's about um, crossing hands. So... Not that I need to explain this to you, superstar pianist, <laughs> Kelly Harlock. Thank you very much. But, uh, so usually your left hand is on your left side, your right hand is on your right side. Mm. Occasionally, if you're doing something with one hand, you need to cross over your hands and play either really high up one end of the keyboard or really low end up the other end of the keyboard mm-hmm. with the opposite hand. Right. I hope that makes any sense to you guys listening. It sounded good to me. So the way that this piece works is that it sounds like there's one continuous harmony thing going on while a melody plays above it. And in fact, the piece is written on three staves. It's on three lines. So it looks like you need three hands to play it, basically. Oh, my days. This is crazy, man. Yeah. But what happens is (laughs) that every alternate note of the melody is played by a different hand if that makes sense. So it starts off like the first note is played by the left hand while the right hand's doing harmony. Then the left hand goes back to doing harmony and the right hand plays the next note of the tune and so on and so forth. absolute boffin! And the thing is, it sounds like really simplistic when it's played. It sounds wonderfully simple and beautiful. Mm. But just bear in mind like how crazily technical this is. Let's jump right in and have a listen. What do you think? So we actually just watched a video of that being played as well. And I sat with my mouth open for a good 30 seconds, didn't I? Yeah. So I appreciate that just listening to that, it doesn't sound that cool or impressive because it just sounds like, you know, a lovely, calm piece. No, but we'll we'll post I... on Twitter, we'll post a video of it and you can see it's just like so cool. Oh, my day. So you're totally right. So the dum, 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 yeah. Every That's, note of that is played by a different hand. Yeah. But they're constantly going up and down, up and down, up and down. How amazing. I know. And so this is why List is so cool, basically, because he 
used all this crazy virtuosity, but in a really, really musical way. Yeah. And actually, some people think that it was, in fact, Chopin's influence that turned him into more <laughs> of a more of a musical composer. Huh. Because you have someone like Paganini, who was known and is still known as Crazy Virtuoso. Right. But now all of his pieces... I mean, we talked about them at the time in the episode, right? They're sort of, they're show-off pieces. They mm-hmm. show off what you technically can do on a violin. Mm. He occasionally wrote like a slower, more lyrical one. Mm. But he's not that well known as a composer now. He's sure. not really that celebrated for any of his, any of the musicality, really. It's more sort of sure. about showing off the violin and what the violin can do. Right. Whereas lots of Liszt's initial stuff was just about pushing piano technique as far as he could, just for the sake of doing it. Mm. But then he incorporates this real sort of sense of musicality into it. And lots of people attribute that, as I said, to, to Chopin, introducing this sort of more uh, romantic, poetic side to his compositions, which mm. I think is really cool. Absolutely. And one thing I found out that uh, Liszt said during his teaching, so after he'd finished being a performer and was doing all of his masterclasses for free, mm. again, top bloke, <laughs> uh, he was always about the musicality rather than just the virtuosity. So he told his students to, quote, wash their dirty clothes at home, basically meaning like he he wasn't there nice. to teach them how to play notes really quickly or do anything. Right. Uh, he was he was there to like teach them how to be good musicians and how to impart their music with more musicality. I get it, yeah. Like practice in your own time. Do your scales on your own exactly. time, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I think he's just a really fascinating musician and composer, in fact, that he so he had all the bag of tricks, he could do anything mm. on the piano, and still some people argue that he was sort of to this day one of the best ever pianists, mm. just because of like what he could physically Such do on the a instrument. Trailblazer as well, yeah. I know. Super cool guy. And so just to let you know, that was the third of these concert etudes, which is normally called Un Sospiro, which is uh, Italian for a sigh, I believe. Beautiful. List himself never really used this subtitle, didn't come up with it, but that's sort of how it's known now. Brilliant. So if we were to explore this further, where do we turn? What, what do we do? Where do I go? What do we what say would I do? to ourselves? Mm. Uh, so I'm actually going to give just one recommendation this week. How dare what? you? Mm. But it's of a massive body of work he did. So he wrote these pieces called the Transcendental Etude. Mm. And they are just mad. They're absolutely mad. Like in terms of how good a pianist you need to be on a technical level to perform them. It's just bonkers. They're so, 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 so difficult. But musically just like incredible. Like, I mean, as the very humble name suggests, they are <laughs> transcendental. Uh, but really, really wonderful pieces. So there's, uh, they usually releases just like a whole album by themselves as uh, so there's a couple of pianists like Daniel Trifonov, Kirill Gerstein. Oh, yeah. There are a couple of people who've released just sort of astonishingly good versions of them. Mm. So that's the list to go out and listen for. Check them out, lads. <laughs> listen for. Please leave us a five star review. Please leave us a five star review. Please leave us a five star review. So now we've come to the end of our big old shopping list. <laughs> uh, Frederick Chopin and Franz Liszt. Yay. If you enjoyed the show and want to find us in more places, why not head to our website, www.thatclassicalpodcast.com. Yes. There you can find all of our social media profiles, uh, including a link to Spotify, where we've made a playlist of every piece we ever mention in the show and pieces that are related to pieces we talk about in the show. <laughs> and more. All sorts of stuff. Yes, indeed. And if you could also make your way to iTunes and leave us a little cheeky five-star review, we'd also massively appreciate that as well. And tell we us, love you forever. Yeah, tell us what you think of the show, please. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll see you next time. Bye. 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 <laughs>